those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Isaiah 40, 31. It was 22 degrees outside. The winter had been much colder than the last. The increased ice and snow had brought me back to Helfrick Hills Golf Course more than expected as the other trails had been treacherous with frozen precipitation still clinging to their roots. But on this day, only a trace of snow lay on the unthawed, windswept hills as I began my long run. The sun had already begun its perpetual rise over the frozen landscape. I had settled into a quiet, rhythmic pattern that I hoped would maintain itself over the next few hours as the promise of a 50-mile run at land between the lakes beckoned in the springtime. Just a couple of weeks before, it had been a much different story. My brother, Andrew, and I had joined up after a solitary hour on the slick, snow-covered roadways, only to dive off into the deep, covered grounds of our beloved course. With our feet encased in plastic sacks underneath the quickly whitened sneakers, we made our way downhill slowly into the hidden fairway below. We would follow these unseen pathways just as we had done hundreds of times before, only this time the green was nowhere to be found. It was a plodding, at times strategic run that day, as six to eight inches of snow often drifted well over our ankles. It was an exercise in contrast, as we moved over slopes where others had been, only to emerge into the virgin tundra where our footsteps remained alone. That day, I finished my run alone, only to find my way back to the course a week later. The snow had melted some, but the mild temperatures kept the sod underneath unexposed. This time, though, as I stepped onto the hilly expanse, I realized it would be a much different day. Gone were the conditions of a week before in which my foot found the bottom through soft, billowy snow. On this morning, each tenuous step was accompanied by a sinking, cracking feeling as the hardened blanket seemed to pull my foot downward in an uncertain embrace. Hours lay ahead of me, and as I carefully made my way down the 12th fairway, I was uncertain whether this seemed to be a prudent course. Not only had the snow become a weakened, dicey foundation, but the sledders had created many minefields of miniature jagged peaks and valleys. But as I turned towards the flat 13th fairway, I perceived something distinctly in the distance. Memories of the sledders and the walkers had cleared. There they were, alone in the whiteness that lay in front. I felt the emotion of love and gratitude sweep over me. I was not alone. Two sets of footprints, side by side, serpentined into the hills ahead, as far as my eye could see. The day would turn out okay, of that I became sure. For just as the footprints would again leave me on the hilly parts, enveloped by the footprints of sledders gone past, our two sets of footprints would once again emerge, again in the lowly flatlands. Two weeks later, I came back for the third and last time that winter. Midst the chill of a below-freezing morning, much of the brown and green had emerged, and this day the footing would not be a concern. But as I turned on that same 13th fairway and thought of the footprints that had melted away in front of me, I was flooded with a moment of transcendence. 
I began to cry. Instantly, I thought maybe it was just that simple. Maybe the metaphor buried for 2,000 plus years in the New Testament wasn't just a metaphor at all. Welcome back to the final podcast, number 52 of Living a Whole Christian Life. I just can't tell you how much of a privilege it has been to share this journey with you and how grateful I feel for you spending this time with me. No matter how important I think this mission is and how much I believe that it's critical for our world today, the reality is that you have many different ways to spend your time. And so the fact that you spent it with me today and so many days before leading up to this final episode means more than you know. So the preceding passage was taken from the beginning of the epilogue of my book. It's really the lead into an incredible story you have never heard before unless you've read the book itself. And it's literally a story that has been moving and I believe running through the New Testament for 2,000 plus years, which has really not been uncovered until I think that moment of transcendence there. So for those who are interested in the full story, which is certainly beyond the time that we have today left available for the podcast, you certainly can check out the book Holiness, The Unified Pursuit of Health, Harmony, Happiness, and Heaven that we certainly have framed this podcast from. Yet, you know what? Beyond that particular understanding, the story for me and the experience for me is really a broader reminder that there is so much left to be uncovered and brought forth into our world today. And not just from God's design and the way it interacts with everyday life, but also Jesus's ministry and presence. And and there's so much left to be understood in its fullness and its completeness that we have yet to uncover. And yet still, as we end our podcast today, as we go forward this final episode, we really have to come back to the basics, the basis of where this pursuit began a whole year ago. And what we believe, what we really have talked about throughout this entire, entire series are some of the most core, self-evident beliefs that frames our everyday Christian lives. And the first one, you certainly heard me talk about this a number of times, but is, again, if we truly, truly are made in the image and likeness of God, as Pierre Chardin said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. The second is that if God did create us as we believe in our faith and our depths of our being, then we must come to understand that this pertains to our whole being, not just what we might perceive as our spiritual religious selves. And then there's the third premise that we've operated throughout this entire podcast, which is that we are people of many parts and dimensions. But we are all one body, all one spirit, all one mind, and thus everything affects everything. Science vindicates this idea. Theology vindicates this idea. We are people of many parts, but all one body. And so if we believe that we're made in the image and likeness of God, that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, if we believe that God created us and that this pertains to our whole being— And if we believe we are people of many parts and dimensions, but all one body, mind, and spirit, then it serves for us to understand that our image, our pursuit for holiness, 
is truly the pursuit for wholeness as God's image and likeness would have for us. And I hope that as you go forward from this podcast, I hope that you go forward in your life in the coming weeks and months and years, that you continue to have your own reflections about this idea. I think this has been one of the neatest things for me over the last couple decades in many ways, is to really reflect on this idea that if God truly, as we believe, created, of course, us in his image and likeness and created our whole being, then what does this really mean for our lives? What does it mean for every single aspect, the most mundane aspects you can imagine, to the most spiritual aspect that we can aspire to? What does this mean for our lives? And I think that's something that we we should never let go of. That's the pursuit that we should never stop pursuing. Because ultimately, what we'll find there is not only the incredible collective mission that we're all a part of, but also the uniqueness that each of us has in God's image and likeness for us. And so those are the premise, those are the beliefs, those are the ideas that run through Christianity and for which we've been talking about all this time. And so the reality is that if we really base this living a whole Christian life on those ideas, that in doing this, we become the co-partner with God, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit that is spoken of all the way from Adam in the Old Testament to the apostles in the New Testament, and for all the people to come afterwards, both before us sitting here now and to come from the end of time, right? And so like Adam, of course, and like the apostles, we know that we're going to fail. You know, so much about what we talked about throughout this series is not to deny the reality of failure, to not deny the reality of sin, of course, but to recognize that failure doesn't define us unless we don't continue to come back to this unique collective call that God has for us. And that's one of the great things about the merciful God that we have and and the mercy that God gives us is he says, look, I I know you're going to fail. In fact, the people that I picked most to lead and promulgate my message failed over and over and They were afraid and they were prideful and they had all of these particular things that they struggle with. And yet I promised to equip them with what they needed to take the mission forward. So if we really truly embrace this idea of the co-partnership, and I I think that that's so critical here is that we can never just assume that God is going to do things for us. Now, again, God does have his miracles and God does things beyond our ability. And certainly the grace of God is the only way that which we live. But if we just accept and believe and let God do everything for us, we're missing the point of this co-partnership. So if we repeatedly, though, summon his support, right? And again, we don't strive to do our part in this co-partnership. What science and theology have taught us is that we will likely fail to find peace in this world. And if we repeatedly summon ourselves in the world and don't summon and unite with our maker, in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, we will likely not also find peace in this world. Truly, our lives, I believe, are a shared covenant. But with the gift of free will that God gives us, it's as repeatedly as if God says, hey, the ball is in your court, and I really want to see you, and I really want to know you, and I want to be with you completely in the way that this unity, this idea, this co-partnership comes to be. But the ball's in your court and I need you to step forward, and I need you to continue to pursue me and pursue your image and likeness through me in all the ways that this is possible. And that really is the co-partnership. That's the idea that we're pursuing throughout this living a whole Christian life. 
you know, the end of this idea, when we think about the basic premises that we've been operating through and the idea of the co-partnership and the sense of really the unity with God and his design, in the end, science that is sound is really no more than a reflection of God's design. And in the end, theology that is sound really simply reflects the reality of our world and our cosmos. That's the simplicity of this idea. Now, again, the mystery behind it is something we'll never even come close to fully understanding. But the simplicity of the idea is that good science equals good theology, and good theology equals good science. And so once again, here we come in this shared idea, in this shared sense of no matter what perspective you're coming from, no matter what what your experiences have been, no matter what the context of what we bring, if it is truth in either way, then it is truth in the end. And yet, in the midst of all this, we as human beings are still constantly in the search for meaning in our lives. And this is regardless of whether we consider ourselves spiritual or religious or, you know, wherever, no matter where we're at in this journey. And so I wanted to share something, you know, as we, in this final podcast that I thought really kind of, again, resonates with the idea of science and theology and theology and science. And so I came across an article about the top 10 insights from the science of the meaningful life in 2022. And it was really neat. This article was selected from over 400 researchers about what really made for a meaningful life this past year. And as I was reading through it, and I was just kind of reflecting on what the article said, it just struck me that it sounds so much like Christianity. And yet, of course, this was a so-called secular publication. And so in the midst of kind of bringing the synthesis one more time between the science and theology of which we've talked about um, this entire year, I wanted to kind of share five of the different findings from this article. Again, the top 10 insights from the science of a meaningful life in 2022. So the, one of the first ones said that appreciating everyday experiences can enhance our sense of meaning in life. But when I first thought about that, I first thought about one of my favorite quotes. This was actually from my book, Confessions of a Carless Commuter. The quote was by Ehi Dogen. And it's, it says, in the mundane, nothing is sacred. In sacredness, nothing is mundane. You know, there's a sense here of appreciating everyday experiences comes back to what we talked about with gratitude, right? If you remember earlier in the podcast, we talked about turning distress into joy and the importance of gratitude and authentic gratitude and very specific gratitude. And that's what it's really saying here is that the more we have gratitude for everyday experiences, not necessarily like huge thrills or just things that are such an anomaly, but those everyday experiences, the more it's going to enhance our meaning of life. Again, it's sounding so much like Christianity. And it reminds me of this uh, Bible quote First letter to the Thessalonians by St. Paul, chapter 4, verse 11, 12. And he says, quote, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. It's a beautiful thing because rarely would you think of the word ambition and quiet in the same sentence. But I think the sense there is kind of coming back to this idea in this article, which is that appreciating the everyday experiences, seeking out those everyday experiences in the rhythm of life is really the ambition that we should find if we want to find peace. And so this was a really beautiful one that was one of the first findings. And it's interesting that prior research had found that meaning in life was driven by having a sense of purpose or feeling like your life matters, like we've talked about. 
and even feeling like the world made sense. But this particular finding, this particular insight found that just appreciating those experiences may be another key driver of meaning. One of the second findings from this article was that it says, leaning into uncomfortable feelings could help us achieve bigger life goals. Well, (laughs) if there's anything we talked about in this podcast at times, it's leaning into those uncomfortable feelings, right? Whether it's the uncomfortable feelings of anxiety or the feeling of pride or things just in general that, you know, we, we struggle with in life. And so there's, it's really interesting to hear about this insight here from the scientific standpoint, because it reminds me of the verse from St. John uh, chapter 4, verse 18, quote, again, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Again, we have to work through the fear, the resistance of fear to find ourselves in that love that we so desire. And as science has said, and we talked about before, complete avoidance perpetuates unnecessary and unhealthy anxiety. So in this finding here, it says leaning into those uncomfortable feelings, not avoiding them, is so important. And that's what science has been saying, is that we can't avoid the things that we're afraid of or uncomfortable because we're never going to find ourselves on the other side of the dimension where we want to be in the sense of more, more peace and joy and love. And in working through that internal resistance, it really is necessary for all sorts of growth, not just spiritual growth, not just psychological growth, but physical and social in general, right? And the researchers said, here's a quote from this particular finding, that grieving is often uncomfortable. And even though in in being uncomfortable, though, they found that embracing that discomfort can be motivating, that people should seek the discomfort that's inherent in the growth as actually a sign of progress. And again, not something to be avoided or to be ashamed of. And so it's a beautiful idea as we talk about leaning into the uncomfortable feelings that we may otherwise rather not have. The third finding that I wanted to share is it says, we underrate the power of kindness inside and out. And immediately it reminds me of here, the verse from Matthew Chapter 7, um, verse 12, quote, of course, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets, as we came to know as the golden rule, right? You know, we underrate the power of kindness because I think we often assume that other things have to happen to change lives dramatically. But as the golden rule, as we talked about, even with the goo factors, that genuineness and unconditional positive regard and that empathy, it's clear that even the simplest of, of kind activities, even the simplest empathy that you can, you know, show and the responsiveness that comes with it can make a dramatic difference. And that was really part and parcel of this finding here, which is that science regularly has shown within this particular article that regular acts of kindness can decrease bodily inflammation, decrease disease risk, increase self-confidence, increase a sense of competence, and increase a sense of meaning. And so again, think of how powerful that is from a holistic standpoint, that something very psychological or social can ultimately influence something very physical and even vice versa. And it reminds me, you know, of this quote that was shared in the article by Plato, quote, which says, happiness springs from doing good and helping others. And as science has found, being kind and helping others and the sense of that mattering and that sense of that purpose and meaning transmits 
far beyond our poor powers to understand. But yet the reality is that it exists there. And finally, as we come to the last couple of these particular insights from the 2020 sense of what's most meaningful, we come to this title that says, Awe helps us feel more connected to the global community. Again, awe, feeling the sense of awe, helps us feel more connected to the global community. And, you know, we think about wonder and awe themselves, aka often fear of the Lord, depending on what description you use, are one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I love this, you know, verse from Psalms chapter 65, verse 8. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. And these researchers found here that the sense of awe helps you to realize that you are a small but important piece of a larger universe that naturally leads to realization that people elsewhere are relevant too, and they're worthy of our concern. In essence, it's as if awe is the precursor to empathy, that I must have wonder and I must have the sense of great fear of the Lord to recognize that all is valuable, all people deserve our sense of respect and value so that I can truly come to understand the context by which they live. And it was interesting that was shared in this insight here that a study of 2017 solar eclipse that occurred um, regarding Twitter usage, of all things, right, found that people in the eclipse, um, rather than those that were not, use more expression of awe in their general language. The more awe that they use in their language— the more affiliative and humble and nutative language that they use in comparison to that which they use prior to the eclipse. So it was as if the awe from the eclipse itself and their sense of like wonder actually increased their sense of affiliation, humility, and the unitive language itself. And what a beautiful thing that if we can show wonder and grace and just the sense of the fear of the Lord, that it will take us to a place with each other that's so much better. And finally, from this last kind of uh, this meaningful research was the, the topic, quote, wealth redistribution could increase happiness across the economic spectrum. And I immediately think of the idea here, this, the, the virtue of love as the virtue of love as it contradicts the vice of greed. And I think about the corporal works of mercy, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless. What science has found, as I just shared and have shared many times, again, is that when we help others, we develop a sense of eudaimonic well-being. We feel good about ourselves. We, we get a sense that we matter, right? A sense that no matter what's going on in our lives, we can be better for others in their own lives. And it's interesting in this particular research that was shared here that the receivers of gifts, which were largely financial, had extended happiness that it occurred long after the gift of money had been used in various ways. It was something about the idea of being given something that lived on in their spirit, kind of in their soul, and continued to increase happiness long after the gift had been expended. But, you know, the reality is now that currently 52% of global wealth is owned by 10% of people, and the poorest 50% of the world today only own 8.5% of the wealth. So as I thought about it, as we wrap up these findings in this particular article, I thought, you know, what would Jesus do about this? But how would he strive for holiness? How would he give himself of his whole self here in helping others? And just how could we model the same thing? 
So as we wrap up the last few minutes and we wrap up this podcast for good for this entire year, I think that what we have to come back to say is, so how do we really, really give and receive of our whole selves, right? Where do we come back to? And there's, you know, I hope that so much that we've talked about and shared has been meaningful, but I wanted to share one last thing that really moved me in the past couple months. And I think this is a wonderful model for us to think about in going forward and living a whole Christian life. So this past December, on the 100th anniversary of one of my favorite places in the world, which is the White House Jesuit Silent Retreat Center south of St. Louis, I listened to Father Matthew Baugh, our spiritual director for the retreat, deliver a beautiful analogy of how we, just like Jesus did throughout his life, can really give and receive of our whole self. And in some ways, it's very simple. And I'm going to use four words. These are the four words shared by Father Baugh and explain a little bit about these ideas. He said, ultimately in our life, every single day, we need to do four things. We need to take from our world. God gives us so much every day that we use to live and survive and to have joy and and happiness and entertainment. And we need to not be afraid to take from our world. And by taking it and in receiving through our senses, our sight, our hearing, and whatever senses that we have, we must again show that awe and wonder for these incredible gifts that God gives us in this world. And so we must take those gifts. But the second thing we must do is that we must bless them. And by blessing them, think of how many times in the New Testament Jesus took something and then blessed it. By blessing it, we're giving thanks to God, giving that gratitude to God for these incredible gifts and these opportunities. And so we take the gifts from our world. As you know, Frankel talked about, we experience things in the world and we bless them. And we bless them and we don't only give thanks just to God, but we give thanks to the people around us who's made it possible, people that we may have never known, people who might be within our midst. And then we do the third thing. And what we do with this third piece is that we break those gifts. Now, not break in the sense of, you know, breaking them into disrepair, but we break them by the sense of adapting them and using them uniquely in the way that we need them, the way that it it fills us and it fills other people. And it helps us not just survive, but helps us thrive. And then finally, is the fourth piece of this idea of giving and receiving of our whole selves. We give. We give back. We give, again, as Franklin and others have talked about, that in giving of our creativity and our time and our talent and our treasure, we create a world by which we are unified, not divided, that we are overjoyed and not despaired. And so in this, this sequence over and over and over throughout our lives, I hope that you take this for this idea that we take and then we bless and we break, and we give. For consider like the simplest thing, the simplest idea of the seeds of wheat that go into the ground, that we have taken those seeds from God's creation and planted them. And we've taken the soil and the sun and the water, and we've used it. And when those seeds go in the ground and they come up and they produce wheat, and then the wheat comes and we, we harvest the wheat, we should give thanks. We should bless that wheat, that wheat, that analogy of everything we've been given. We should bless that. And then you know what we do? We break it. We take that wheat and we adapt it into bread. We adapt it into so many of the foods that we have. We give food for ourselves and even for animals. And then we give back. And then we create something. And we create it for our kids. 
and we create it for our families and we create it for our friends and we create it for our world. And over and over again, we take, we bless, we break, and we give. And so we come to the end here. And I have to reflect a little bit about this as we go forward into the mission field, as they say at the White House. We're living in an interesting time, one in which many experts predict the division between virtual and reality will continue to blur. And personally, I feel this strangely kind of ironic because it's what gaming manufacturers and social networking sites and television stations are seeking to do is to kind of give us the utmost lifelike experience of the most dramatic, amazing kind. Much of this promise is that it comes with no strings attached, but that, of course, is not true, and we know that. But that's the subject, again, for another time. But the great irony that I feel is that what we want, that the virtual world is really trying to give us, is another life, but just like the one that's available to us now. And for those who want to love authentically, well, it's available to us, but always at a price. For those who want to be a soldier, it's available, but of course, with some or the ultimate cost. For those who want to climb a mountain, that too is possible, but of course, with definite risk. The reality is that all life comes with risks and costs. Just ask Jesus Christ. Anything that comes with a promise of none is really not a life at all. So as we risk pulling ourselves out of our own lives and rendering those four dimensions of our being into a semi-permeable shell, a stranger looking back in the mirror, there still remains a promise that beckons that St. Peter, in his second letter, verse 2-3, says, quote, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. If we can come to believe this, then it appears that the life is there for the taking in whatever pathway we are called. I pray that you and I shed our fear and our pride, that we embrace change that must come, joys and sorrows that will arise, and our long run to the one that is all. This is Jim Schrader. Be holy, be whole. Amen. Amen.